Hello, creeps. Welcome to the Horror Vanguard. I'll be your ghost. I mean host for today's exciting tale of terror. An interview with Cynthia Cruz, author of The Melancholia of Class, a manifesto for the working class, out now from Repeater Books. <laughs> Hello, everybody, and welcome to another episode of Horror Vanguard. I am your co-ghost, John, otherwise known as the Liquid Guy, joined, uh, as always, by my friend and comrade, Ash. How are you doing, my friend? Oh, I am doing so very good on this gloomy and overcast day. This is, this <laughs> is ideal weather, if only it was storming right now. <laughs> Perfect podcasting weather. The, the crypt is is dark and dank as it always should be. Um, and we are both extremely <laughs> excited uh, to welcome to the show another guest um, here in the HV Crypt. Uh, we are joined by Cynthia Cruz. Hello. Hello. How are you? Uh, we are, we're, we're both very well. Um, we are here <laughs> to... Uh, talk about Cynthia's book, The Melancholia of the Working Class. Uh, but for people who may not have come across you or your work, um, would you mind maybe taking just uh, just a minute or two to kind of introduce yourself, tell people a little bit about uh, what you do and where people can find and support your work? Sure. So I, um, I was, or I was going to say, I was previously a poet. I, um, I published six books of poems, um, and then uh, in 2019, I published a collection of critical essays. I was looking at silence as a form of resistance. Um, and then I, I've been working on this book. I've been thinking more about um, class and the working class. I teach for a living. I teach usually at um, four or five different uh, institutions at a time. Um, and hmm, I live in Brooklyn, New York. So it's a very it's a very welcome background then. I think we're all various manifestations of the cursed academic. I like that description of being a cursed academic. I think that's... <laughs> we, we we all made the Faustian bargain to get into this thing and now here here we are. Well, I just wanted to start by let let us talk about the melancholia of class, a a, a genuinely achingly beautiful piece of writing. Um, exploring uh, class, haunting, consciousness, culture, uh, and so many incredible things in between. And we will hopefully touch on 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 some of those as as we as we talk. But Ash, maybe uh, where would you where would you like to start? Um, I guess I'll, I guess I'll start on a, uh, a personal note because so uh, the melancholy of of class a manifesto for the working class out by repeater books authored by cynthia cruz available now wherever fine books are sold <laughs> <laughs> um there, there there was a lot um especially in the first several chapters of this book that like really resonated with me personally in in a place i've been for the last several years mm -hmm. i have i have a like a working poor background with my family, like first generation, first generation, you know, college graduate and graduate school, all of that stuff. And, and all of the conversation in this book about having your class identity kind of stripped from you coming and going, right? I both 
don't fit into the upper and upper middle class environments that typically circle around the drain of <laughs> graduate school, um, as well as, you know, by, by kind of passing through this fire, there are aspects of the cultural signifiers of the working class that are kind of burnt off of you um, as you move through this. And so you kind of wind up unmoored, right? You, ha you have, the, you talk about this later in the book, but you kind of like, there's like this dual death that members of the working class can go through, right? And you, you become a ghost in both environments. And that stuff was just so incredibly powerful for me. So I just wanted to thank you for writing that. That was just phenomenal here. Thank you so much. That's, that's, um, yeah, I'm sort of speechless. I don't know what to say about that, except that that is um, exactly why I wrote the book is I, um, I felt so alienated. I mean, really the, um, the drive through the book is just absolute alienation. I mean, everyone I'm surrounded by in all of my environments where I live, you know, are these other people. Um, and I just kept thinking there has got to be at least one person like me. And so to hear you say that, it's just like, that's the whole point of the book. I'm just so glad that that's happening. Oh, that's great to hear. Because like my, my big takeaway from this book is this, this, this is a, like a, either the beginning of a bridge for me to shed some of that alienation. Mm -hmm. And that, that is just some of the most personally powerful stuff in here. Yeah. Great. I think, I think it's going to resonate with so many people actually. And, you know, uh, th that, that, I think that feeling that you described of like, there has to be someone else, you know, is it, it that, is it that, that kind of burning, is it just me feeling is, is a kind of, Gen almost generationally universal, I think, to especially to to um, people who have who have come from working class backgrounds and have uh, like like all of us have tried to sort of you know enter leave it behind in some way because that's what education is supposed to promise. Right, and I, I'm thinking too about um, you know Ash when you were describing you know your coming up that sounds just like mine I was also I mean the book you know I'm the first person to go to college in fact I just found out um, talking to my mom recently that um, I knew that my father hadn't been able to finish grammar school because he was working in the fields but my mother didn't finish high school so that was I thought she had finished high school um, my gosh what's my point but um, talking to um, my relatives right who are working class who have not sort of had this burning thing, right, this thing we're describing, um, what I notice is that um, they, because we don't have, um, so I'm speaking from the U.S., this is where I grew up, but we don't have the language. So, right, they feel, you know, my father feels extraordinarily alienated. He's absolutely um, paranoid for good reasons and um, withdraws from the culture and doesn't trust, you know, um, state, the government, you know, authority figures, but he doesn't know why. You know, when I started talking to him about, you know, the working class and, you know, I'm writing this book and, and all this stuff, then it started coming into place. But without that language, right? So it's it's us, you know, the people who have left and lost who we are. But it's also, and I think this is really important, in my experience, right, just my relatives, even the people who, um, and leaving is confusing because there's where I grew up. My family no longer lives. There is no place place, but they haven't left in the way that I left. And they still are alienated from, you know, their class, um, their social class. Right. Yeah. I, I think that's, that, that's a super important thing to underscore. You don't, you don't need to go anywhere to get lost in this system. That's yeah. kind of 
that's one of the, the, the cornerstones of how we become alienated. And I think like the, the, that, those aspects of the book, right. Those, those personal anecdotes about family, I think like, I, I just can't help believe that so many of, of our listeners and of course, people much more broad than that are, are going to resonate with those aspects of the book. Yeah. And I think there's also, you know, I'm talking about there not being a language and that's, that's been the case. Um, but I also think that um, one of the things that I've been thinking feeling is just this kind of sense of overwhelm. So um, a little personal, um, more personal stuff. My mom is um, very, very sick right now. Um, I don't know, I won't get into it, but she's like deathly sick. Um, and her insurance is shitty. She has insurance, but it's, you know, it's really bad. And um, what do I want to say about this? It's, um, I, 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 you know, like she, she, she doesn't have any care. The doctor, she's supposed to be, I know I shouldn't go on about this, but it's just, it, what am I trying to say? She has one kidney, her second kidney is failing and she can't get a, a, an appointment with a specialist. It's been like three months and her general doctor doesn't return calls. I tried to get on the phone for 45 minutes um, and I couldn't. And the point of this is, is that, um, right, this is how the working class and working poor experience everyday life and the way that this compounds, right? So there's that. And then there's also all of, you know, like years of it, this kind of experience. So this burning away or this um, not having a language is also sort of juxtaposed with this sort of um, almost like, I, I, it's just like layers and layers and layers of this stuff, right? And I think those two things together just compound, right? Oh, oh, absolutely. And that's a, I, I promise I will hand the mic over to John in just a moment. <laughs> but um, I, I, I don't know if you've read it, but I couldn't help but read uh, your your latest book in context with Rachel Ann Jolie's Rust Belt Femme. Mm -hmm. uh, another, another incredibly phenomenal book, but there was, there, there's something in both of these, like there's a shared thread that is uh, working against alienation by attempting to kind of sew the quilts of working class memory back together, right? By, by sharing our stories in a very intentional hour here, not, mm -hmm. not a, a uh, kind of a, a depiction of the working class that comes down from on high where it's like a factory worker from the late forties and his traditional family, but like an actual embodied and lived experience. And I think that that just in and of itself if, if this, this book is so much more than that, but if that would have been all it was, it would have just been incredibly powerful. Like I think some of that bringing memory back is just some of the most important stuff that's happening right now, by, by my estimation anyway. <laughs> I mean, just to, just to pick up on what you were saying, Cynthia, I'd like something, something I really, really love about your book is the insistence on the ways in which this is all connected to the wider networks of capitalism. Um, and just as you were talking, I was, um, I was reminded of uh, Barbara Koppel's documentary, uh, Harlan County, which is, which is about striking coal miners in Kentucky. And there was just, there's a kind of like just tiny moment, which pops into my head, which is um, Koppel talking to a, to, to a miner about their, um, the number of sick days they get in their contract. Um, and, and she, she asks him, you know, what about going to the doctor? And he says, doctor, I can't afford to get sick. You know, it's, 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 it's not, it's not that this is just a kind of like, 
this 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 is a this is an this is an economic problem as well right and it's 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 tied up in the in those the kind of vicious double bind of neoliberal capitalism right right and again i think that um when we start when we share our stories in this way the other thing that i'm also very much aware of is when i tell this story about my mother you know i feel like oh she doesn't you know it's personal, but you know, I know that that there are the majority of um, Americans uh, in the U.S. experience something like this, right? The majority of Americans are actually working class, working poor. You know, different. There's different um, levels of that, but um, you know, uh, and and you know, or, or don't have any insurance, you know, or um, and, and what happens is it becomes part of the everyday, and so it's not even um, brought up. You know, if, if my mom talks to somebody, she doesn't bring this up, right? It's just sort of the background. So I think this is part of why it's so important to talk about it. And I guess the other thing I'm saying is that this is different. Um, this may be my story. I guess what I'm trying to say, but it's really our story, you know, and that's what I'm saying is that if I can say this, then I, I feel like other people can say this and it's all the same story, which is the majority um, of U.S. citizens, but it's actually also the majority of people in the world, right? And and it's just sort of confounding when you think of the fact that 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 um, it's the opposite experience, right? Everywhere I go, I see you know middle class culture and middle class um, values and laws and you know all this other stuff, and it's it's not ours, but we're the majority. Sort of rambling on, but um, it's all it's all related. Um, actually, actually, there's there's a there's a just a section from the very early parts of the book that I, I was looking at as you were talking. Um, and I think maybe this could serve as like the jumping off point for building on everything and then go, kind of going into the next kind of part of our conversation. Uh, so you write, uh, to resist assimilation is to insist on our working class origins, on carrying with us the lives and histories of our families, communities, and culture. To give up pretending that one is not who one is, is to render oneself marginalized. It is to refuse neoliberalism, which insists on homogeneity with all of its ideologies of aspiration, optimism, progress, and the idea that power and money ought to reside in the hands of the work of the ruling class. I don't personally care if the middle class has money or material things or power. What I care about is that the working class and the poor lack material goods, jobs that could provide such such goods, agency, and mastery over our lives and the lives of those in our communities. Hell yeah. <laughs> I, I I was going to bring that section up too. Like that, that was one of the hardest hitting things in that book. I, I had that exact same reaction after I read that. I was just like, oh, hell yes. <laughs> so I, I guess, I guess really what I, 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 I think we can talk about is this idea of, of resisting assimilation and the ways in which that um, assimilation is contested in culture, which brings up maybe maybe the chapter that me and Ash have talked about the most, which is talking about <laughs> the jam. <laughs> Ash, what what did you think? Uh, I I really really loved kind of the way you because you know like the jam and style council are explicitly political in their lyrics explicitly working class right but often not discussed that way you know like in the city so shows up on like every like kind of like 
a lot of movies, a lot of romances. It's just a very popular soundtrack track. But like their their manifest content as like working class politics kind of gets lost to this other stuff. So I really loved how that was kind of given its proper contextual grounding here. That was phenomenal. And and the the other thing that kept coming to mind is like I, I kept thinking of the I think it's the cover for Crass's fifth album. <laughs> But it's got it's got that quote where it's it's something like the the nature of your oppression is the aesthetic of our anger or something like that. And I kept thinking how like the the, the almost in, in like on an aesthetic sense, the jam and crass are like two sides of the same coin where they're like actively speaking with and engaging with the aesthetics that kind of come from middle class and upper class culture, but appropriating them for working class goals. And I really I just I love that chapter. Yeah, I mean, I have a lot to say about the jam. I was thinking when you were both talking about the jam earlier that, um, you know, so when I was in high school and they said this in the book, I was not, you know, I, um, I was not aware, right, that I was working class. I wasn't aware that that's why, you know, um, I had the experiences that I was having. And yet, right, yet, um, listening to the jam and then later the style council, I seriously think that that saved my life. And it was like... Um, was like visceral, right? I would just, you know, uh, listen to what they said and just feel like, yeah, exactly. I feel exactly that way without, right? Without um, being able to articulate why. And so I feel like um, going back to the class consciousness that there's levels of it, right? Um, mm-hmm. And so I think that's that's part of it. And I was thinking too about how, um, right? Because when I, I read about um, Jason Molina and Mark Linkus, and they also were you know, proudly working class and never resisted assimilation um, but the way that they write their song lyrics and what they did is a little different right and I think um, I was thinking about how you were describing you know that you hear the um, different albums or different songs from the jam all the time without the context and I wondered if if that isn't okay isn't that I don't know I don't know so I guess it's the thing that I bring up too about how um, you know in the circles you know the literary and academic circles I'm in, right, to be, um, right, the goal is to sort of be, quote unquote, avant-garde, right, it's to be sort of, you know, whatever, an indie band or something, right, rather than being popular, but I, I think that that's, you know, that's something that, that I wrote about in the book, why is that, and that feels like more sort of elitism too, um, there's a lot of answers to your question, I don't even think it was a question, but the other thing was, um, part of, part of what I want to do with this book is to do, um, an intervention, right? So these, the jam less so, but some of these other musicians and artists are explicitly, I mean, they, you know, look at Barbara Loden, you know, talking about class and yet somehow, right, culture has been able to completely remove that from the work and make her um, unfathomable completely, Mm -hmm. right? So I felt like it was really, the jam was pretty easy, although, you know, not entirely, I mean, not, you know, I still had to sort of, you know, do some work, but, um, but I really felt like that was part of the project too. And that's what I want to keep doing is pointing out these um, artists and musicians and writers who are working class, who write about the working class, write about their lives. And yet, because they're written about through these, um, you know, middle class, uh, through middle class culture, um, that those, 
aspects are removed. So I want to put them back in and with their own words, right? And again, with the Clarice Lispector, I mean, this is what she writes about. And yet somehow people don't seem to, to see that. It's incredible. Yeah, yeah. The, oh, go on, go, go on, go on. No, no, no. I, go on, after you. After you. <laughs> Here, here's the 30-minute section of the episode I have to cut where John and I just like pass the torch back and forth for a second. Um, no, I, I think that that is like very important work to be done because, you know, punk, punk, more punk is a very broad category, right? Punk is a, a massive umbrella that I'm just going to throw over the jam and like a thousand other genres for a second. But um, this, this kind of like mod revival, early punk, all, all of that stuff, like a lot of that music especially now is kind of recuperated into this acceptable capitalistic framework and, and working to kind of pry it back out and kind of return to it the like, you know, working class regalia and context that it originally fought to have, I think is, it's, it's very meaningful and very moving to to restore parts of our cultural identity. Like alienation it happens along these cultural vectors too, because the only, whenever we see ourselves in media, it's always as a prop. Mm -hmm. And this works uh, against that to, to wrap up that thought. Right. I, I really, really loved how you connected music and time um, and it reminded me of a kind of similar point um, Mark Fisher made, makes in the unfinished introduction to Acid Communism about um, Sunny Afternoon. Um, and this idea of like refusing, uh, no, like, and the contrast you make between Joy Division and the jam where, where you know, Joy Division is so in it, there's, there's, there's no way of seeing to the outside, but, the, I love the way that you put it that the, the mod is always on the lookout for the exit. You know, how do you get, how do you get out? You know, how do you, how do you, how do you stretch out your time away from work? How do you, how do you pack so much in or, or refract time in those kind of beautiful moments where you glimpse a freedom and agency that isn't determined by the, the grind of a minimum wage job um, was, was incredible. And I think, I, I I don't know. I was wondering if you think that that way of manipulating time, of that focus on time, has become more pronounced in in maybe work that draws influence from people like the Jam. I'm sorry. How do you mean? So so if if the mods are looking for a way out, you know, if they're if they're looking for the exit, is is that is that search still happening in? kind of contemporary culture or has everything been absorbed everything kind of been been um recuperated by this delibidinized middle-class aesthetic right right so this this is where the death drive or the drive um so Freud calls it the death drive Lacan calls it the drive whatever um I think this is where this comes in right so when you were just talking I was thinking of um drug use and alcohol um because that right if you so if if I'm working, whatever, you know, two different jobs and I don't, you know, there's no, there is no time and there's no leisure. Mm -hmm. um, 
something like alcohol or drugs or other things, right? There's eating disorders and spending all your money and all kinds of other things that I think about. But those are two, I think, most obvious. They definitely spread out your time, right? If you um, if you you go home and you just get totally you know, wasted, um, you're in a different world, right? There, that, that the exit is the exit. It's this other exit. It's this other space that you're going into, and, and time is change, right? Of course, it's um, pharmacon, right? It's both good and bad. Um, and I'm not advocating, right? I'm not advocating either of those, um, but just pointing it out, right? That that is, um, and I think especially now, you know, when so many of us have to work, I mean, I'm, you know, I'm, I'm very lucky, you know, and, and I'm working like five jobs at a time. And so I was thinking today, actually on the subway, um, somebody had asked me a question about um, ruptures and uh, and the possibility of a third possibility within ruptures. Anyway, it was not related to this, but I immediately saw that this was related to it because I work so many jobs and I like I don't have work for next year, so I don't know if I'll have work. So it's it's like all of these compounding um, uh, fractures. It's part of the structure of my reality then I have to get extremely creative. Um, I have to write things on the subway or I have to really stretch out time, right? I really um, have to find that way. So that's another, I mean, these are two different examples, right? One is actually trying to find time when there is no time. We have to get very creative about that. Um, and then the other one is just sort of dropping out the, the previous, the former, right? Which is the, the, um, the drive. Uh, yeah, absolutely. And like, it can be that that too can be like, um, this idea of like, how much can you pack in, you know, it's like, you've got to get on that grind, you know, you, you, you like, this is this is the kind of logic of, of, of neoliberalism for, I think, people who are poor people who are working class, which is like, if, if you just pack more in, you might get to the point where you don't have to do quite as much. Because as you point out in the book, middle class and upper class, have leisure built into their lives mm -hmm. um and it's like i was i was talking to, about this just the other day which was like i think doing a phd kind of maybe almost it feels like almost permanently uh, and much for the worse affected how i think about quote unquote work because everything becomes oriented around this concept of you know i mean i'm in exactly the same position am i gonna have a job next year um, you know, I've gotten jobs uh, teaching, which obviously is an incredible job to have, but I've gotten a, a job a week before term started. <laughs> and it's th this expectation that you'll be able to kind of just drop everything, um, uh, th th that kind of horrific neoliberal buzzword of flexibility and choice is really just a way of, of, of kind of robbing you of even the possibility of leisure, not just leisure itself. Right. And that, so that reminds, I mean, that just makes me think, you know, where is the exit, right? Where, where is the way out? And that also, and again, that's where the drive comes in, I think, because there, um, there isn't one. I mean, there's just, it's just constant, constant. And there isn't any, um, I mean, I grew up right with this idea that if I, I mean, I think we all did that if I just work hard enough, then something will happen. Um, and certainly things have happened, but I don't have full-time work. I don't know what's going to happen. Um, and so that's not the truth anymore, right? Um, and the only exit is to completely 
drop out. I was thinking of something else with that. Now, ask, I need to ask me another question. I forgot what it was. Sorry. Ash, do you have do you have a question? So I, I think I think this is this is really interesting because the the end of the book is kind of this open ended call to action, right? Mm -hmm. it's, it's asking us where we kind of go from where we're at right now, and I think this kind of like it, it's it's almost strange that I'm saying this, but I think there's like a mod revival approach to like working class unity. Mm -hmm. And it's, and it's that like all of these ideas of time and like, I, I think, yeah, like we're picking up what you were, you were saying, time, time is built into our lives systemically, right? Like, you know, being middle-class, there's just vacation time as part of that life. You don't need to do anything to achieve it. It's just there. And I think like, yeah, I don't know. That just got me thinking about like a lot of times the working class approaches things with kind of these middle-class managerial tools and mindsets because we're so instantiated in this system of we wait in line at the DMV, we fill out some forms, we hope the forms do their work. You know, we were, we're kind of just a gear in a system of gears, but actively engaging with time, I, I think is part of that frontier, right? How can we meddle with time, time as exit? These are all very interesting. I don't know, this is, this is not really a question. This is just more of like a thought that popped into my head right now. Yeah, no, I think I think so. I mean, so just um, I've been thinking a lot about how. Um, so the point of this, there were there were there were many reasons why I wrote this book, mostly because I had I had to. Um, but one of the the goals or the main goal is that I I um, I wanted other people to have the experience I had, where you know I realized, wait, <laughs> all of these things are because of my class, you know, and I'm not insane, right? So I, I wanted that to happen. Um, and that's a, um, that's a revolutionary thing when that happens, right? When I realize that, wait, that it has to do with social class, right? That that's, for me, then everything changed and literally there's no going back. Um, but to be clear, that isn't the end, right? So that's the beginning. And so this idea of, um, I've been thinking about the death drive, and how, you know, that's obviously something that I write about a lot in, in this book, but my main focus was melancholy, of course. Um, and the death drive is about wanting to go back to beginning while also reaching the end, right? So um, I'm just thinking things out, but but um, right, like I said before, it's like a pharmacon, right? It's both a cure and the poison, but it seems like there's... Um, something in that right and and perhaps that's withdrawal um but anyway the, the the maybe most important part of that is um my hope is that people will read this book feel like oh yeah this is you know this is me and then there are all of us right and then mm -hmm. we can start you know like we are now formulating like what is the thing that we do and how do we not use the middle class um tools anymore how do we not think in that way anymore right because that's not um that's not our thinking and of course there's no way to escape it right capitalist journalism it's there all the time but i still think you know like you're saying there's a kind of bending or there's a kind of um right i think we could do that together so that's my hope i i think i think that's that's really interesting right there's a lot of like um like gothic language that, that you evoke in this book, mm. right? Like the, you know, working class individuals as kind of hauntings in and of themselves, the, the, 
metaphysical deaths we go through, the death drive that compels our class as a body. And I think like that for me, kind of just like right now, folding that into like these, these thoughts about time, you know, one of, one of the frontiers of time is kind of in the historic graveyard. It's, it's to go back, it's to go into memory, it's to go where the ghosts come from. And I think that that like, one of the things that really resonated me with while reading this book was that, you know, with, with different specifics, like this was my lived experience. This was the lived experience with so many friends I've had. This is, and this was the lived experience of so many people I know who are no longer here. And it's, it's this being with us is also kind of a, a being with our ghosts in a way. I was wondering if you had any like thoughts on that. Yeah. I mean, I, I, I have, I have a lot of thoughts about that. I mean, <laughs> listening to you talk, I really, it almost makes me start crying when I think about, um, you know, just the people I knew in high school, you know, they couldn't, mm-hmm. you know, they didn't even make it through their twenties, you know, and, um, and, you know, and, and as I said at the beginning of the book, I mean, it's, um, it's a lot about illness and a lot about death because that's what, you know, that's what, um, we're surrounded by. So yeah, I'm not sure except to say that, um, wait, that's the melancholy, well, that's not the melancholia, but that's sort of the sorrow, right? That's this other level of mm-hmm. it. Um, I don't know what to say about that, except that it's, it's, it's true. I also, the other thing I guess I'm wondering about is, um, is the, is the rage. Right. And, and I, that's something I think about too, that, um, you know, in the book, I talk about the difference between leisure and loiter and, um, you know, mm-hmm. I, I'm not really allowed to get, you know, I can't lose it. Mm. I mean, I guess I could sort of in a book, but I'm sure the reviews would be terrible. <laughs> you know, I mean, this kind of, um, yeah. So I, I also wonder about that, you know, thinking about that. Because I mean, when I think, you know, when I heard you talk, just say, you know, the people who aren't around, I, I, it's just so overwhelming, you know. And that's something I, I, I use that word a lot, you know, that I'm sort of always overwhelmed because, again, you know, as I was talking about with my mother, there's just so many levels of this, you know. Just we've only been talking for thirty something minutes, but there's, it's economic, but it's not. I mean, that's just sort of superficial. Mm-hmm. There's all these. Um, ways, you know, and, and I was thinking about, you know, the different, um, now I'm off on a tangent, but the different, well, because it's rage, right? I was thinking about um, how, you know, as a grown-up, you know, I've been told by my colleagues, you know, um, you know, comments where people will comment on my clothing, right? And, um, you know, it's like high school, it was like, it's like high school all over again. Um, but these, these small little gestures that happen all of the time, right? And I have to kind of Know, keep it together, seem, you know, seem sane when I'm teaching and that kind of stuff. So I, I wonder about that also, you know, what do we do with this? Rage, and I think for, for most of us, it's, um, we turn it inside because you, again, like we, we can't, mm-hmm. we can't get away with it. Yeah, yeah, I, I mean, I, I, I couldn't agree more. I think that that rage gets sublimated and it and it comes out in ways that, I guess for lack of a better phrase in the moment, like the forces that power cultural hegemonies accept and not in the ways that would challenge them, which would be healthier and good, right? Like you couldn't, 
you know, I'm, I'm just thinking about like, what would, what would happen if like a senior academic colleague commented on like my tattoos or something. And then I was like, well, that's improper of you. Isn't that classic? <laughs> <laughs> but, but of course, like, you know, it's, it's perfectly culturally acceptable to like snap at a Starbucks employee for forgetting to put extra whatever in the Frappuccino. Mm-hmm. I think you're completely correct that actually the, the rage is often like internalized and um i mean mark fisher wrote extensively about mental health and it's like as as not simply not simply just a a kind of individualized problem right but a but a social symptom of something right that if if the the cost of capitalism working seems to be kind of painfully horrifically high um and it's like that's be, and I think that rage is turned inward because there is no means by which it can be articulated politically. I mean, like I, I was smiling as Ash was pr- talking that, talking about that. This idea of like, oh, it, you know, how could we, how could we complain, compl- complain about classism? And it's like, well, that's 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 a political problem, and it shows mm-hmm. that there isn't the kind of like the mechanisms by which that that rage can be directed at at, at the the political causes of it that was not very articulate of what i, what I just said no no, no it was great it was great i was thinking about how um right that that brings us back to you know how do you talk about something that doesn't exist right and and this is one of the problems i wanted to address in the book is you know if um if if in the u.s there are no social classes which is what i've been told over and over and there aren't there's no working <laughs> class anymore you know, and again, you know, everyone I know tells me this. Um, then, then you know, then of course, if you say something like that to somebody, they're they're just going, to, you know, what are you talking about? There's no such thing. And that again makes me think, okay, so I'm looking in the wrong direction, right? And and I think again, that's the project of this book is, you know, we're the ones, you know, all the other people who hopefully read the book and feel like, yes, this is me. We're the ones who. Um, you know, it's 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 like not turning anymore, and I know it doesn't make sense, but it doesn't make sense, right? Not turning anymore to the to the institutions and um, the authority figures and the people in power um, to sort of say, you know what, you're right. And again, I know this no, makes no sense. They're the ones who um, have the power to imprison us or you know do these other things, but um, to turn to ourselves and by by ourselves, I mean you know communally, you know as a group mm-hmm. and. Um, because I can't tell you, you know, just um, how affected I've been by, um, you know, I get these, um, I've received a few, you know, um, emails or little messages um, by people who have read the book and they tell me that, um, you know, how moved they've been by the book because they weren't, they didn't know what was happening until they read the book and now they feel like they can do X, Y, Z, they couldn't do it before. Um, so again, I think that there's something there that is not um that is about i guess turning away you know from because maybe you know maybe it also has to do with assimilation assimilation you know as i understood it was you know my mexican father trying to assimilate into you know u.s culture but it's 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 um more nuanced than that too you know so trying to get um you know somebody you know from the middle class to accept that there is a working class like 
who cares mm -hmm. anymore, right? I want the working class to realize we are working class and then we can do something with that. And I guess, um, yeah, that's what I'm thinking. And I think, I think I, I really want to emphasize how important I think that point is this, this idea of, um, of, of asserting an, a, a new articulation of, you know, what, what, what back in the days of when we would admit that classes might be a thing of what we would call <laughs> class consciousness, right? That knowing that you were not alone, knowing that um, you don't have to look to the, the quote unquote um, authoritative institutions for, for validation or approval, but knowing, um, you know, what, what the old school Marxists would call the, the, a, a class in and for itself, um, I think it's I think it's so important and is one of the most kind of refreshing and like I, I, I maybe it'd be strange for me to say but it's like optimistic and hopeful things about this book yeah no exactly and and you know the other thing I, I think that I say this in the book but just to be clear right that um, you know so being working class or working poor or you know whichever iteration we are of that um, is not identity politics, right? I mean, to me, the, it's, it has to be communal, right? It is part of being this larger, um, and again, it's the majority of people, right? So just, it's important for me to, to point that out, that this isn't, um, it's totally different than that. And that, of course, um, the ultimate goal is for there not to be classes, right? So it's not, you know, again, it's not a fetishization of you know, working class or anything like that, but it's, I see it as um, sort of steps, not that I've created any kind of like one to three or anything, but I do see it as this is the most important first thing. And then we kind of get together and something else happens. Um, mm -hmm. that, that's not the end point, right? The, the end point isn't that, you know, um, whatever, I start dressing like my grandfather or something. I mean, which is also <laughs> fine, but that's, that's not, you know what I'm saying? That's not it. Oh yeah. Although it's part of it. Yeah. It, it it is as as you say in the book. It's it's this is it's it's the possibility of the ground of something to begin from. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Um, and, and the fact that it's so desperately needed, and I am a hundred percent convinced that you will get a regular stream of those messages. Um, it just shows how kind of important and timely this is going to be. Yeah. Yeah, and the thing, you know, that we're talking about, too, you know, I, I, I always feel like, um, you know, I'm, I'm, it's too much, you know, I'm, I'm um, you know, I'm asking too much. But then I think about the jam, or I think about, you know, um, I guess what I would call like early punk, right? And it was, that's exactly what it was. It was, you know, we're not going to do this, you know, we're, it, you know, and so, you know, we are who we are, and we're not going to let you guys tell us what to do, you know, and I'm going to protect my dad or whatever, this kind of thing. And that's just been lost. So it really is just, mm -hmm. I don't know. It helps me remember that it's not that long ago that, you know, there was the jam, for example, you know, or, um, the style council or other, I mean, there's other bands, but just, um, you know what I'm saying? Ash. Hey, how's it going? <laughs> <laughs> You know, we've, we've been doing this for 160 episodes and we're still, we're still working our way through being, I guess, broadcast journalists, <laughs> whatever this is. Um, 
No, no. I think like so it's a kind of like the spirit of punk, I think, is really interesting because it's it's such a multitudinous thing. Mm-hmm. It's everything from like the most tired and commercial of the like 90s ska bands to like uh devastatingly aggressive and inaccessible kind of like just audio audio screeching you know and so it's it's this this beast with like a thousand heads and that there's something in a lot of it though there's like this anger right and i think in a lot of respects a lot of especially a lot of early punk before the the 90s rolls around and punk kind of like cleans up its act but there was a lot of meditation on that anger and what to do with it and where to go with it. And as much as punk was a rejection of kind of the previous countercultures, uh, it's a doubled rejection because punk is a rejection of a previous counterculture's rejection of anger, right? Of, of a desire to move forward with love and peace. And this is like, okay, what if we had unity, but rage? And, and to tie this kind of into the book a little more and some of these other ideas, I, I think like, all of these ideas of hauntings and ghosts and specters uh, often get manifested in the melancholic. You know, we, we have our, our bemoaning and sad ghosts, but then there's also the poltergeist. There, there are these figures of ghosts that are, that are driven by their rage, that are fueled by it, that are back for vengeance and unfinished business that have a chip on their shoulder and things to prove and things to do. And there's, there, there's almost like an absent, presence there right like there, there's a poltergeist uh, uh haunting europe right now <laughs> um yeah i don't know there, there there was a potentially that was a coherent string of words i just put out there that, that'll work but like uh anyone have anything to go over from that no i think one of the obviously one of the big um uh inspirations for me was walter van you mean you know don't worry we don't have to you know, um, talk about them too much, but just, you know, this idea that, um, that, yeah, reparations have to be made, um, probably the wrong word, but, um, for the past. Right. And so that may, I mean, it, it makes literal sense to me, you know, and I think of my father, um, you know, he was, who I think is throughout the book, you know, and I, I watched him work, you know, all of these different jobs, you know, growing up, he was never home, you know, and, um, and, yeah, I mean, he suffers from depression, you know, all kinds of horrible things. And so um, I think that's a lot of it. You know, I feel like um, these ghosts, you know, they're with me and they're also the ghosts of the past and um, they won't go to sleep. You know, they won't, they won't be laid to rest until, mm-hmm. um, yeah, I'm not, I'm not sure because I think I thought with the book, you know, if I, if I put this stuff out there, then they will be laid to rest, but it feels like not, not quite, you know, it's the beginning, I guess. Um, I was thinking of a, of a, of a quote from um, Richard Gilman Opalski um, in, in their book, Spectres of Revolt. Mm-hmm. Um, and he says that ghosts are, are ghosts are real and natural. What would be supernatural um, would be for there to be no ghosts at all. And it, in a sense, he kind of makes the argument that, that systems of capitalism seek to, and we can think about the ghost in terms of our kind of personal affiliations or like memory or, or you know, as Ash introduced me to the concept of the long memory um, and capitalism's constant churn, on, which happens on every 
conceivable level of existence is designed to kind of expel all of those ghosts, right? It's designed to, ev everything has to be the most modern, the shiniest, the most productive, the most efficient. Um, but it means that there's this attempt to kind of strip out and and bury under under layers of asphalt, you know, uh, memory ghosts the the and but those those can never be entirely eradicated um you, you know which is why as uh on on, on, our, on our podcast we read the book and went yeah capitalism's haunted <laughs> like, <laughs> oh, oh, we know this <laughs> like we like we like you know um i think the the example of you know harlan county back in the 70s those those miners had uh signs that said remember blair mountain Mm -hmm. You know, they 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 had their their fathers or their mothers or their grandfathers talking about uh, blood the the bloody war in Harlan in in the 30s, where you know uh, the governor would call in the national guard to shoot um, strikers and and would throw would take union organizers to the county lines and and throw them out. So it's like those ghosts are absolute. I think Ash is right. They're absolutely bound up in in not just the kind of like sense of of loss, but often a, a kind of a righteous sense of kind of m militant anger. Yeah, I know for sure. I mean, I think I, mean, I was thinking about how, right, progress, right, and this idea about um, it, it's just, it's so completely crazy. And it, I, I don't even, I'm sort of dumbfounded with the whole thing. But one of the things I've been thinking about too is just the masses of people. Um, so there's my father and, you know, my relatives and, and people I knew and things like that, um, the people who have suffered, but also just the many sort of, um, I don't want to say nameless, but the people I don't know, just the many people who have worked, you know, um, who remain anonymous to me, I guess, and to most people, but they worked, you know, two or three jobs and, and just what a waste, you know, to, I mean, it just makes me so angry, you know, um, to have to work you know, in the U.S. have to work two or three jobs. Um, and that's your life. I mean, there is no space for thinking. You know, there's no space for, um, let alone leisure or travel, there's no space for anything, right? And that's, that's a life, and it's not coming back. I mean, I get so angry thinking about it. So, you know, this kind of um, this dichotomy, I guess, or this, um, this gap between, you know, um, capitalism, which, you know, as you're saying, this cementing down and, you know, always looking into the future, forgetting the past, you know, history doesn't matter. And if I make a reference from 10 years ago, I'm like out of it and old school and um, old or whatever. Um, but at the same time, as you said, I mean, there are all these people suffering, all these people who did suffer that doesn't go away. And I think there's something really powerful about any any attempt to reckon with these ghosts, right? Any attempt to actively commune with the dead in this sense, because that 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 is almost akin to like a work stoppage strike, right? You know that that is that that is doing stoppage for like the the middle of time, right? Capitalism is just grinding up the past and and preventing a meaningful future for this like. It ever refreshing and eternal present. And I think when we go back and we try and like rearticulate the constituent components of our memory. And when I say our memory here, I mean the memory, the collective memory yeah. of the working class, 
you know, our, our appraisal of historic events going back, you know, because the history is that we have, you know, it's to, to quote Utah Phillips as I want to do, whose history were you taught? You know, like whether that's a white a history from a perspective of the patriarchy or a white supremacist society or a colonialist one, or in, in this sense, you know, like the history of the upper class, you know, tying back that memory together gives us access to these ghosts. And then that in turn gives them a chance to like, I guess, resolve their unfinished business. So if you want to be a ghost buster, you have to be a goth <laughs> Marxist is what I'm <laughs> Yeah, and you, the other thing that uh, I'm surprised, I don't think either of you brought up or you have, but maybe we veered we off with um, just the zombie, right? And, and when mm-hmm. I look back, I feel like, you know, I was a zombie for most of my life. And, and Barbara Loden said, you know, I was a zombie. For mm. This kind of, right, so the working class, working poor, living in a capitalist culture, you know, there's so many ways that we, we become zombies, right? And, um, you know, the one that I write about is... Um, by turning away from our background or, you know, in, I think most of our case, my case, I didn't even know. Right. So I was this, I was this other, I, well, I wasn't, you know, I thought it was this other thing, but it wasn't this other thing, but I wasn't that thing. I wasn't anything. Um, and I really was alive, but dead. And, and I think that's the way they want us to be. So, you know, so then there's zombies, right. We're um, not yet ghosts. So we're not yet dead, but pretty close, you know, yeah, it's it's no it's no surprise, right? That that's in 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 my we talked about this on the show before that the zombie is the 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 monster par excellence of like the last of of horror since the seventies has been obsessed with with zombies, um, and I think there's something so that there is something so sort of melancholic and sad about that truth, but there is also. Um, there's a kind of potentiality there as well, right? Because, you know, uh, uh, the capitalist class might see uh, the, the, the masses of, of working people as, you know, the, the pliant labor pool, you know, the, the horde of zombies outside the factory gates. But there is kind of potentiality there as well, which can do so much more that can become something so much greater, something, you know, so radically different than that very narrow vision, you know, this, I, I love that, um, that, that kind of analogy of like, you can wake up, you can, mm-hmm. you know, you can, you can be alive. And, you know, once you have that, um, once that's been, once that's been awoken within you on a kind of the level of consciousness, not only, you know, how can you go back? I don't think you can go back, to be honest, but that's the good news, right? <laughs> yeah, yeah, exactly. <laughs> yeah. I, I mean, I think the, the, the zombie is such a, a good functional metaphor for the contemporary state of the working class as not, not just a political body, but a cultural body more broadly, right? Like, you know, you've got all the service level comparisons, right? Where, like, the... Uh, you mean you know, people usually see the zombie as this inarticulate horde that just kind of shambles about and does whatever until it's time to get rid of them. But like on, on, on top of that, like, you know, once you become bitten, once, once you recognize your positionality with the rest of the zombies, like there is no, 
there's never a cure for the zombie, you know, whatever, whether it's a magical zombie or some kind of viral bacterial thing, there's, there's no, no way out once you, once you've been brought back in. To, um, to kind of start thinking about wrapping things up, we, uh, their name has been mentioned a, a couple of times, but maybe we could talk for a little while about Barbara Loden. Um, and I don't, I don't know, sadly, I don't know how many people would be familiar with Wanda or with Barbara Loden, but Cynthia, maybe you could kind of, who, who's Barbara Loden? What's, what's Wanda? Yeah, so Barbara Loden was an actress. Um, she was raised by her grandparents in Appalachia, um, and she made her way to New York. She was 17. I might be wrong about that. Quite young. Um, and um, and so in order to make money, she was dancing at the Copa Cabana. That's all right. Um, anyway, she um, she married, um, oh my gosh. Somebody help me. Ilya Kazan, right? No, that's wrong. I'm sorry. Oh, um, the director and filmmaker. Um and they were married, I he was much older than her, and um, she wanted to make a film, and uh, he didn't help her. Nobody would help her. Um, and eventually, somebody did sponsor her and gave her $100,000, which isn't very much, wasn't very much at the time. Um, and so she was able to make this one film, Wanda, on a shoestring um, uh, budget, uh, so small that there were only two actors in the entire film. Um, and a lot of the really wonderful um, side effects, the graininess and... Um, handheld camera um they're both um because she was a fan of warhol's factory films but also it was due to uh, money um so she made a film um based on an article that she came across um but it's also yeah maybe a little bit about her experience um and so well so the film is about a woman who um is in appalachia and um in a working class working poor environment um married with children and um, very unhappy and going nowhere. Um, so she tries to escape um, by um, by clinging on to these different men who are really awful and rotten. Um, and she, uh, it, it blows up in her face, of course. Um, terrible things happen. Um, and in the end, she's um, she is shown at this um, roadhouse um, with what appear to be other working class people um and and they're um you know a, some a woman says to her you know can i help you um and they offer her food and there's this sort of the sense of a new community right so it's she didn't leave the working class but she found a different um space where she didn't have to um yeah she i guess she found freedom in a way so um so that was the film the film um won some awards in France, I believe, but everyone kind of forgot about it. And then it was um, brought back into the public through a, a number of different um, female writers' writings. That was a long description. Um, no, I, I, I think that's super useful, you know, especially as I think people may not may not have come across Barbara Loden. Um, and I think the way that you talk about how it's written about as as a piece of culture as a piece of art made by a working class filmmaker 
um, is super revealing of some of the things that you've been talking about in our conversation. Like the the absolutely uh, like vicious review from Pauline Kale in the New Yorker. Mm-hmm. Um, it, it kind of shows that 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 that, that it, things kind of swing. You know, this kind of cultural criticism either seeks to kind of completely reject something like Wanda, or kind of recuperate it, but but make it safe make it palatable or and and they do that by kind of stripping things out of the work in some ways right right exactly um so right so i wrote about um natalie leisure and i wrote about um rachel kushner but kate zambrino has also written um quite extensively about um barbara loden slash wanda and when they write about um anyway so yeah so in these uh different examples of writing um, and then also some of the critics, it's exactly this thing where um, either she's completely, completely attacked, and, and it's all by, um, uh, I guess, feminist uh, female writers, um, middle class. Um, so either she's attacked, uh, called things like a slut, you know, or, or, you know, why would she do something like that? Why would she follow a man? Um, so, um, no understanding whatsoever about projects you made. Um, or there's, um, and this is related, and this is also related to what I wrote about Grace Lispector. Um, because uh, her work is is read with the class component taken out, although it's all about class. I mean, in an interview, she talked about um, the project being about a working class woman um, and the difficulties she experienced. Um, so when that is razored out of the um, context, then she becomes unfathomable, both the character and Barbara Loden. And so then when she's unfathomable, these um, female writers then project themselves onto her and they say things like, I can't understand why she would do this. It's, um, you know, nobody will ever know. Um, and you see the same kind of thing about Clarice Lispector. She's unfathomable. She's um, an enigma. And again, this is because what she was writing about you know, class is razored out. And then, of course, she's unfathomable. Unfathomable. <laughs> hmm. um, it, it was very reminiscent of um, another. It made me think a lot about um, another piece of working class art, which is um, a novel by the Glaswegian writer James Kelman, um, in, which was written in the mid 90s and is about a bus conductor, you know, in a working class part of the city and it's written entirely as a working class Glaswegian would, would speak um, and it won uh, like the highest literary prize in the UK um, and one of the judges on the panel like threatened to resign if it was and said it was obscene it was disgusting it was you know how could you call this literature um, and Kelman made a speech saying that like the vast majority of literature uh, is written by people and read by people who've never had to worry about money <laughs> Which, which to me is like, it's like simple and kind of like self-evidently true, but, but caused this kind of huge scandal precisely because it was, it was doing what, what Barbara Logan was doing, which was admitting the kind of unspeakable kind of trauma that exists here, which is the, the admission that, that, that class is a real and active structuring force in social relations still. 
Right. I love that he said, I mean, I love that he said that. It, and it's, you know, it's, it's ridiculous because it's so obvious and yet it apparently isn't and has to be said. But it does bring up the, you know, the, the, the topic of um, who gets to determine our culture, right? And, and who gets to write books, you know? Mm-hmm. And, and this is something um, I think I talked about in my podcast. Um, I did a podcast. I'm doing a podcast. Um, but just that, um, just the importance of, um, of the working class and the working poor having access to um, the ability to, to form music bands, right? Or the ability to make films or write books um, and not just the one, right? Or, or not just the middle-class person who writes about the working class person, right? That it, we actually need um, to be able to create our own culture, right? And, and this is something I think about too, how does that happen? And I'm not sure yet, right? But it's a really good question. And I think, um, you know, this thing that I, I just, you know, growing up in, in this culture where, again, I've already said this, but where I looked around and, you know, the only thing I saw, the only thing I see is, you know, middle-class culture, you know, everywhere. And to the point, right, where we don't even know that that's happening. Yeah, it's so so that you know when you have something like uh, someone like Barbara Lyden, um, you know it becomes it, it it's reading through how you write about some of the critics that, that that commented on it. It's like it's almost unthinkable for them. Like they can't they can't think. Uh, it has to be obscured, right? The 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 film has to become placed behind this kind of impenetrable veil that you can't get to. Even though, if like, it's it sounds like to me that the film is very clear and very kind of precise and and very deliberate in everything that it tries to do. Right, but this goes back to the you know this this um, this belief that there are no working class. So if you really believe that there are no social classes and there is no working class, then something like this um, will not make any sense to you. Mm-hmm. And of course, it doesn't make any, you know, how could anybody even say that? I mean, that's one of the things that made me so angry in the beginning when I was working on the book is, you know, all the people I know who say they know no working class people. And I'm thinking, but what about, I mean, it's endless, the list, you know, the, the person who makes your food or the person who drives the bus or the person who's, you know, teaching your kid, like, it's just endless. The police, you know, all these, the majority of people, you know, all of a sudden they become ghosts in a way, right? We just literally mm-hmm. are not, um, and I think this is true, you know, that we literally are not seen. Yeah, you know, and and made invisible, and not just not just not just on a kind of like social level, but on a structural level. You know, exactly. um, mm-hmm. Ash talks about like how how cities are designed quite a lot, right? And it's designed so that like if you if you work if you work as I have done in the service industry for a very long time you're designed to be invisible by the nature of the business that you work for. Mm-hmm. Like you're designed to be like omnipresent, but also completely intangible. Um, you know, it's like, I used to, I used to work as a, as a, a cleaner for a pub. Um, so it would be that I would, I would go and clean the pub at uh, six in the morning. Yeah. So that, so that by the time the rest of the staff came in, who would then open open the pub for like doing pub breakfast 
the place was already clean. So it's like, it's, it's a magic trick, yeah. right? You just make, you can just make people disappear. Yeah. No, exactly. I mean, in, in Manhattan, there were, I mean, there are still, I, I can't even say it correctly. There are still buildings that say service entrance. Um, because service still enters into these buildings through the service entrance. I mean, it's unbelievable. And when I was a nanny, right, that means that you enter into a different um, entrance into a building, right? So they don't even have to see us. We just, again, mm -hmm. we appear and we are there providing for you. It's unbelievable. Yeah, it's like it's this hideous Disneyfication of the entirety of society, right? Disney has... There's an entire catacomb underneath Disney's uh, amusement parks where, where the working class scuttles about like bugs as they move around trash and food and supplies just so that, you know, people, people who attend the parks never have to see someone change a garbage can or like, you know, move, move something into place. It's all obscured and like... When, when you take that out of like the, the quote unquote magical context of Disney, you get like almost every job I've ever worked prior to getting into academia, there was always a back door for the employees yeah. to enter, Yeah, you know? And it's like, we, we live in these labyrinths, right? We have to go through these secret spaces that the, that the surface dwellers don't see because they're not meant to see them. Yeah, everything's supposed to be seamless, right? There's it's it's this kind of slick, constantly functioning web uh, that you're you're not you can never admit the trick that actually what what powers all of this is labor. Mm -hmm. What powers all of this is work, work that is often um, it, hard and underpaid and exploited and precarious, increasingly precarious thanks to the absolute decimation of of. Uh, union rights and union organizing and it's like but but you can't that 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 trick of like where does all this come from which is the effort and labor of working people is is seemingly is seemingly kind of impossible to admit right and right the, the idea is that we're always there right i was thinking about when i was working at a department store right you just it's again it's through the back way and um and then you're just sort of you just show up on the floor and the people come and you're mm -hmm. just it's as if you're there all the, it's like you live there right it's like i'm always yeah. there for you right but i just was thinking when you're saying that that there's again there's so many of us right and we all show up because we're afraid what would happen if we didn't of course we have to but there's just, you know, when we were talking earlier about the zombies, there's so much potential. Mm -hmm. yeah. yeah. We are, I, I think we, we, we've, hit some, we've hit some fun notes so far in this episode. We're ghosts as the working class, we're zombies as the working class. And I think, you know, this discussion of like the, the, working, the working power moving through secret channels, we were in fact Morlocks in addition to everything. <laughs> Um, I can see from the recording that we've been going for about uh, just over an hour. Ash, do you, do you have any kind of final points and questions that you want to make sure we cover? I, I think this is this is a wonderful place if we want to uh, wrap things here. Uh, yeah, I'm happy with that. Uh, Cynthia, is that okay? That's, that's fine with me, yes. Uh, fantastic. Um, Ash, do you want to take us to the outro? 
Well, that was that was a great chat. Um, we've had a very fun conversation all around, I, I do believe. Um, out there in listener land, uh, you can pick up The Melancholia of Class, A Manifesto for the Working Class by Cynthia Cruz, out from Repeater Books now. Uh, of course, uh, your ghosts recommended this book wholeheartedly. <laughs> uh, Cynthia, if you could let us know where we can find you, where we can find your poetry, the rest of your work, keep up with any new projects you might have. Right. So I have a website and... Um... Typical of me, I can't remember what the um, link is. So if you go, um, you can find me on Instagram. That's the best place to find me. And if you go to Instagram, there's a link to my website. And then you'll be able to see what I'm up to. And links for all of that will be in our show notes. And we'll put those out on Twitter as well. Uh, so thank you. Thank you for, for coming to join us. Also, thank you for writing this book. <laughs> uh, thank you both so much. And thank you for inviting me on. This has been Wonderful. Thanks for tuning in, creeps. And remember, stay spooky. <laughs> Thanks for tuning in, creeps. And remember, stay spooky.